Hey everybody, welcome back to Cinematics. I'm Ryan. And I'm Mike. And today we are talking about a movie that dragged 90s British pop culture into the early 2000s, Snatch. Alright, so on today's cinematics, uh, we will be looking at Snatch from the year 2000. It's directed, written and directed by Guy Ritchie, uh, who directed this, Lockstock, Two Smoking Barrels, uh, more recently The Gentleman, and uh, a surprise uh, movie in his resume is Aladdin. Wait, the like the live act? Yeah, yeah. The, the, what? No. Technically, his most uh, highest grossing film of all time. Oh my it, god. It grossed like a billion worldwide. Oh, I did not even know that. Yeah, doesn't feel like a Guy Ritchie movie. No. Um, uh, so this movie also was uh, notably produced by Matthew Vaughn, uh, who produced Guy Ritchie's first debut movie, uh, Lock, Stock, and Two Smoking Barrels. Uh, Matthew Vaughn has now become a director in his own right, uh, directing the great movie from 2004, Layer Cake, uh, as well as uh, the first Kick-Ass. He's, uh, he's the director and producer behind the Kingsman franchise. He also directed two movies in the X-Men franchise, uh, First Class and one after that. <laughs> uh, they shot this movie for an initial budget, according to the DVD commentary, somewhere around uh, just uh, about three and a half million pounds. Um, but uh, the end budget was around six million pounds, probably for post and and uh, they did some reshoots and stuff once they got into the edit. Uh, although it went uh, well on to make uh, make its budget and then some uh, grossing worldwide around eighty three and a half million dollars. So uh, yeah, so if a budget around ten million American all told, and it made eighty three and a half, so eight the, times. Yeah, it did well. It did well for for a little indie British yeah, film. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, it wasn't treated like that, uh, but it, it, it was made that way, um, which I think adds to its charm. So, uh, Ryan, what's the context uh, for how we're, we're, why are we watching this movie this week? You know, it's funny. I, uh, I picked this without really thinking about this part of it. And I remember sitting there for a while when I started writing this, trying to think of what and where I was when I first watched this movie. And I have no idea. Absolutely no idea. All I know is that I remember being told in, like, shortly after high school, my university time, uh, that there was this great movie that I needed to watch called Snatch. And I, rem- I-, I was brought up because I had said I'd never watched Lockstock. And someone was like, what, you haven't seen that? Well, have you seen Snatch yet? And I was like, no. And, and I think what ended up happening is at one point in university, I bought it somewhere and watched it and i've just always had it and i've watched it numerous numerous times it is top one of my top 10 as far as like fun movies go but i could not label it being anything that stood out in my first watch other than just having such a great time with it um for me when you told me this is the movie you wanted to do this week i was happy i i do like this movie um as we'll get into it's not like the finest piece of cinema (laughs) um but it does what i think um 
like I think it does one of the very important tenets of, of film or, or art in general is it entertains. And I, and I think that's, that was its main goal and tick that box because it achieves it in my opinion. Um, but contextually for me, this would have been one of the first movies looking back on it that I was kind of, uh, because of the nature of the filmmaking, became a w- more aware of who the director was than like this than the lead because I, I think I, I mentioned on previous podcasts, but like my I wasn't a big film buff growing up, or my family w- weren't that into films. We watched regular Hollywood popcorn flicks, like every other family probably. And the Disney animated stuff, um, and the Pixar animated stuff, <laughs> um, but um, but like movie stars were, were the reasons I went to watch a movie, not the director, not the writer, not now I see movies for cinematographers, um, but the 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 stars is what brought me in, and and by that reasoning, Brad Pitt was very much the reason my eyes got attracted to this movie. Okay. Um, this was post fight club. So to me and my like late teens friends, Brad Pitt was a, a golden God. Um, we were even like, man, he's awesome. And river runs through it. And like, <laughs> we were talking about like his most, we would talk about his most like, like romantic early stuff. Cause that's oh. how much we loved him <laughs> as a, like an actor. Cause of fight club and right. Yeah. 12 monkeys and seven. And like, he had been, he had been just the, from about 94 to the end of the 90s, Brad Pitt was, like, just a hit machine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and he was picking, like, he would pick young directors to work with. Like, he picked David Fincher for David Fincher's first, like, it's a studio film, but, like, his first studio film is Alien 3, but his first real movie is Seven, and... That's and this is Guy Ritchie's second movie, but his first movie that maybe has a little bit more studio involvement because the first movie was a true indie. And then, you know, and he was picking these young directors, young directors that like, and he continued this throughout his career. But, anyways, um, but yeah, so like, this was a first movie, like, movie that opened my eyes to like a director's style, I think, and like made me aware that like kind of more what their director did if that makes sense yeah 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 no that makes sense i mean i think that i kind of got that vibe uh i remember watching it and 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 i think it was because that was post my really getting into looking at directors and writers from a more analytical phase and i think it was probably one of the first movies i ever watched where i would notice that there was a definitive uh definitive style i mean uh, I I always kind of felt that. Now I don't I don't know dates and releases and things particularly well, not off the top of my head like you do. Uh, but in my head, this has always been the movie that sort of began the big pop cult hype of um, light-hearted, fun, funny gangster crime heist movies. Like I know there's uh, there's one or two before. Like Lockstock is kind of in that genre. It's the same sort of feel, and it was prior to this, but like. In my head, this is the first one I ever saw that had that, and the year after, Ocean's Eleven comes out, and it's suddenly it's this like thing that people know about in a wide range of the public eye of this sort of not just the Martin Scorsese gangster movie that is like you know, but like the funny, lighthearted kind. Like this movie treats 
violence and and crime and gangs and like whatever in a very um light-hearted manner in a lot of the ways uh that you wouldn't normally expect yeah um Lockstock is very much this similar feel to this movie i i like this would have been also one of the first times i heard the the word spiritual sequel used because <laughs> like a lot of the same actors are used but in different roles and a lot of like that kind of thing like very very much um similar setting similar characters similar story for from lockstock to this um and in fact in the like in preparing for this episode and watching like dvd features and interviews and stuff with guy, guy Ritchie, he said that after they gained some success with his first feature lockstock and two smoking barrels that you know hollywood came calling and he had lots of offers for different projects but when he was approached by Matthew Vaughn, the producer of this, as to what he should do or what they wanted to do next or what he wanted to do is he said that he had like Lockstock was a collection of stories he had heard down the years in pubs that he just like fit together all these little cool vignettes. But he left so many of those stories on the cutting room floor and the construction of that story. So Snatch is essentially all the stories that he had heard that didn't fit into Lockstock. He made room and kind of found a thread to tr tie them all together uh, for Snatch. I, I loved listening to that portion of that interview and listening to him talk about that because I, I just found it so fascinating. First of all, the insight into the head of the writer in a way but like the idea that he's sitting in a pub somewhere and he's listening to people tell stories about these characters who are you know almost legend or or as he calls it folklore uh and trying to uh, picture them or imagine them in reality and struggling to you know and, and we all know people like that or we all have stories from our our younger days of like these things that almost become these sort of folklore amongst the people who were there so it was kind of fun to see and hear about how that was transposed into like a, a story that, that hit, you know, hit a pretty solid audience successfully, I think. And, and the carryover was kind of cool. And I guess to your point about the Hollywood thing too, well, the other thing I found interesting is that that's how they got Brad Pitt was that he saw Lockstock and loved it so much. He just wanted to work with Guy Ritchie. And so he approached them about it and they're like, oh we need to make a role for Brad Pitt in this movie. We can't not. Yeah. And, and well, famously they were trying to give Brad one of the other, uh, tried to give him a different role. But then when Guy Ritchie heard his English accent was like, well, we can't do that because <laughs> he had uh, to the, to, to what we've kind of been saying is Guy Ritchie had a very distinct vision for this film and a very like, I think it's North London accent that he wanted to play heaviest amongst most of the people and so and that's a difficult to like regional the accent. Cockney, uh... yeah but it's like it yeah because like well <laughs> i mean pygmalion and all that uh, my fair lady like talks about how london like three streets away is a different accent <laughs> yeah, yeah so they found a kind of a role for brad that he enjoyed more like he took a, in his early career he did a, a few roles that were like famously in true romance he plays the guy on the couch uh, Brad Pitt plays like a stoner who spends two thirds of the movie just like l l laid out on a couch. I did not know that. <laughs> um, so this these small kind of funny stonery kind of roles. Not that this character is a stoner, but like 
But the way he, yeah. he speaks and behaves, I mean, it's got that sort of vibe. To yeah, it. yeah, yeah. It just, it, yeah, feels similar. Um, yeah. So anyway, but the, I just also responding back to your, you're saying this kicks off the like lighthearted uh, um, crime film style. And, but that's like, to me, that's like the, the crime caper has always like going back to like Chaplin has been to like a, like a genre I would say, though, that like the late 90s is when like they brought more of the darkness in to the crime caper like that. There's some pretty dark moments like there are. There are. OK, so and that that trailer shot uh, that they even identify in the DVD commentary as we shot. We picked this shot because we were like, we have Brad Pitt in our movie and we need to put him it like make him look cool in the trailer. But the shot where the he's lit by the flames of his mom's caravan yeah, burning, yeah, and yeah. he just you just see the pain and anger and and everything in his eyes. That's like a like out, like if you just have that shot, no context, and you put it up in like as like Brad Pitt for best like actor this year in an Academy Awards, and then you just show that clip, you'd be like, yeah, he nailed I'd, it. I'd buy that. Yeah. <laughs> All right, fair. So I guess I should. And now I had this thought when I was thinking about. Uh, these notes and putting that in as like the the lighthearted treatment of it, uh, because I know that Guy Ritchie has said that he made uh, Bricktop an animal abuser because he thought that it would vilify him and make him that much more evil in the eyes of of people, um, and that that was the way he kind of felt that he would be able to most turn the audience against him was by his dog fighting and his treatment of his dogs. And he also has uh, preceded that by saying that it didn't work and that it was not the heavy sort of like hitting um, dark thing that he wanted it to be for that character. And and I thought about that a bit. and And to me, I felt like there was... The movie's full of a lot of really dark moments and things like the the dog fighting and the shot of the dead dog when they first come in and like the feeding people to pigs and the whole burning his mom's caravan and all that. But the movie itself, whether intentionally or not, and it could be that I've seen it enough times now that it has become less impactful when I get to those scenes, but it feels to me like the movie treats them lightheartedly whether intentionally or not the language feels less serious and dark and heavy and 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 maybe it's because so much of it is funny and silly that when you get those moments it bleeds over but i i watched that scene and i was like this would be really dark and shitty and and i would feel really bad and i do and i did the first time i watched it but but i think now it just kind of all gets this bled tone of you know uh the i guess like Vinny and soul type attitude through the whole thing of just sort of goofy comedy that doesn't seem to stop well i i listened to him say that as well and he he semi like indicated that he was trying to in the writing and and um conception of this movie was trying to play it more serious down like down the middle uh than Lockstock, because Lockstock is a bit of like a 
romp a crime romp <laughs> um and it's a little bit more like to me it's a it's it's very funny it, and it's played for it to be very funny whereas this um i like it 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 looking it also amuses me a bit that he was trying to play this so serious when and he was like embarrassed that and worried that it was going to play as farce and i think it does play as farce unfortunately yeah. Um, so, um, but that's what I liked about it. Like, like, well, that's what it was enjoyable. And, and I'll, um, there was a time in my life, I'll say where I very, like, I really liked this movie. Like it would be a movie I would recommend to people when they ask, would ask for recommendations and such. I don't feel that way about it anymore. Um, that might be just like, I've seen it enough and I'm bored of it. Like, like I'm a, so I've seen it and so many times that I'm bored of it or or that it just hasn't um, aged well or I'm not sure what it is, but it it, it doesn't hold as high esteem as it, like I enjoyed it watching it again for this rewatching it. And like it was, a uh, you know, um, but it it doesn't. I don't know if there's as much uh, at one point, I think when I was younger, I got so caught up in the way it was shot and the and the convenience of the plot um while confusing it's convenient um that i thought there was potentially more meat and substance to the story than there is and but i think that's allows that's what unfortunately makes it more of a farce and lighthearted is because there nothing really serious is being handled in, in this film yeah no no i think i would agree uh i i think that I remember when we talked about, or when I suggested the uh, sh- doing this one for the show, and I remember suggesting it with a lot of excitement because I hadn't watched it in, in several years, and I was like, ah, oh, I used to think this was like my top five favorite movies and whatever, and and that was that was me at like uh, you know twenty twenty one twenty two or whatever, and now uh, as an older person with a a bit of a different perspective on life and a bit of a different perspective on how I watch movies, I still. Th- like I still enjoyed it. I had a lot of fun watching it and it's exactly that. It's a fun little romp. But you're right. It it has it doesn't have a lot of it doesn't do it, it like nothing really ends up happening or being said other than just these this cool sort of like fun co- conglomeration of four different storylines that all kind of have these, you know, again, folklore kind of characters that it's all just sort of like a fun sort of romp but it doesn't have a lot else to it beyond that but well you mentioned story there we've also brought up how this like the look of this and stuff where we where should we... talk about cine yeah before we get yeah because i like the one of the main things that this movie did and a, a few other movies around this was did was was this slick editing and like pushing the boundaries on like um over cranking the camera and, and for slow-mo and and things like that and like 200 frames per second all the time for like when that when brad pitt gets the uppercut in the boxing ring there that's i believe 800 actually was the, it? when he I hits know. when he hits oh. the water uh, it's 200 for so they go between normal speed and then to 200 for the um for brad pitt's punch like that's why it like comes in so quick is uh, the speed ramping yeah, yeah. Um, 
so but then yeah so uh but the i believe they said they went like as long as 800 frames a second when they went to the the him falling into the water wow. or hitting the canvas that displaces to the yeah. water um but yeah so but the the thing i wanted to say overall about the aesthetic of this film is it and and why i thought the opening about this being kind of the culmination a little bit of like the 90s pop culture influence on the world or the western world i guess was because um and not just british but that like this guy Ritchie and a few other directors right at the same time um were heavy music video directors and commercial directors where you got to really push the boundaries of with cameras and stuff and you got to try new things and you got to experiment and because it was like like music videos are where a lot of directors and dps and stuff use time to experiment and try things and where you can actually you're making something so it's not just a a practice film something and it like like you would for a film class or something it's a real thing you're making so there's stakes but also you get to experiment a bit and you have time to do so generally yeah yeah um but it's it brought it brought a lot of interesting things in and like another famous director and i mentioned him earlier already was david fincher who came from a music video background and like he started doing things like you know transitions and stuff when they're um safe room is that the movie yeah safe room uh, uh david ventures i think third or fourth movie there's like transitions where the camera like goes through the venting into another room or it like sinks through the floor and you actually see between the floorboards kind of thing like a cartoon would almost oh okay and like he's he's trying all these little things that they're little flashy moments but they they go to the story generally and they go to like, he has reasonings, critical thinking, reasoning behind things. Like he wanted to feel how conf- confined they are in this house and stuff. And the panic, Oh, panic room. That's what it was. Called. Oh yeah. Okay. Not yeah, safe yeah. house or safe and, room. And or that, that's interesting because, um, uh, and this isn't a comment, I think on like the quality of Guy Ritchie as a filmmaker. Uh, but I think that like, with David Fincher doing those things, it's, it's a similar sort of style in the sense of you're drawing attention to the camera and you're drawing attention to the the tone of the movie by using a unique um, uh, style to the cinema. But in, in this movie, it, it feels very much a, a style over substance, a, a choice choices being made about things because they're aiming for a specific tone and style that is not... Um, serving a greater theme or story but serving a greater rule of cool almost well that was so that was kind of what that whole 90s british invasion pop culture invasion was in north america because um and guy Ritchie actually says it in one of those interviews he's talking he talks about like british cinema was starting to really be pigeonholed and like seen over the world as uh costume dramas and period piece type of stuff like that's like jane Eyre and that like that's all it did kind of thing and he was saying he wanted to do the very opposite of that which is why they like he loved the idea of being having these what he called really efficient transitions so 
Avi talking to Doug the Head, and he's like, I'm coming to London, Doug. You hear that? I'm coming to London. And then it's like five still shots or slightly, some of them are moving, some of them are stills kind of thing. Time clearly and hasn't like, passed at all. Chunk, 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 <laughs> chunk. And then like all the way to Avi. It's like and he teleported like, there. Yeah, and it's it's a cool little transition, and it's quite the opposite of like, you know, holding on a field of wheat while it blows and a few birds like <laughs> rustle up from the, like you would in a costume drama while you're showing mourning or whatever. Yeah, yeah. And and I think that I, I say style over substance because not in a, in a, a pejorative way um, in the sense that I don't think that it's done poorly or that it is a, a problem. Um like I said, this was one of my favorite movies for quite a long time, and it still holds a, a little warm place in my heart in a lot of ways. But, um, you know, it, was, it, was, it very much serves a purpose, and it very much has this, um, this quality that makes it engaging and interesting to watch. Uh, it, now, I mean, it doesn't always necessarily have... Uh, it, it isn't always perfect throughout the movie. Like, um, that flight to London, the, the return when after he shoots bullet to tony and he just like slowly backs up and then it's chunk 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 and he's back in in you know the states again but and then there's other moments where like oh they're just zooming in on a thing weirdly or you know they're doing like the dropped frames um that doesn't always play quite as well but uh the reason i brought up his motivations was because he specifically was trying to use the camera as a character in the story and so you're like you're talking about like you know they're on a like a three shot and then it the camera like zooms into well it's not a zoom it's a push but pushes into turkish's face or statham's face or somebody else's face for their reaction and there there was it was style but it also worked later for um for the that Rashomani ending they have <laughs> where it's you know they play the same events at slightly different times from all the different perspectives of all the different storylines we're following and um but because we're seeing someone's reaction we're not seeing the it, it's saving that little bit of a turnaround reveal that oh there's the the uh travelers are in the vehicle and not the you and know. that it's actually Boris that gets hit by the car and things like yeah, that. All yeah, of, yeah. yeah, all of those little fun moments. Yeah. Which is, that was what I was talking about or, or alluding to earlier when I said is uh, convenient storytelling. But it, right, it's, yeah. it's what you're looking for in this type of multi-narrative. You're, it is exactly what you come to this movie to watch. And if you haven't, you probably won't like the movie. But if you come into it expecting it to be that, it's giving you exactly what you're there for. And that convenience is convenient but also i it never bothered me like it does in some cases where when it becomes that convenient i think part of that is because it the movie tries (laughs) the movie (laughs) the movie tries to have justifiable things like so with um the dog that's in it um there was two two dogs play that one dog um because there was a biting incident with the first version (laughs) of the dog and they had to kick him out and so then they got an all white version that they had to put makeup on who does like the ending scene does most of the scenes except for the bitey work that was all the first dog 
But uh, but so they establish early on that it eats that squeeze toy, which is a funny comedy beat in its own. But it sets up. But for... then it sets up that a it's gonna use. So you already get in your mind if you're a you know if you're a film watcher, you're like, oh, that's foreshadowing. I recognize film language. That's yeah. telling me that the dog is gonna eat something important coming up. And then, but then the because it's a squeeze toy, it plays to the like payoff of that is that when they. Uh, when Turkish and Tommy find the dog they're wa- or the, their dog they're walking at the end and take <laughs> yeah, yeah. that dog and then it has the annoying squeak every time it breathes or, whatever, or every time you pet it. It's the only reason they go and get it checked out. Exactly. All yeah. those reasons, right? So, like, the... It, so it it tries to have things that, like, are seeded in the first act and or first... first uh, it's convenient, but it does the Chekhov's gun thing properly, where it yeah. sets up for those things so that when the convenience happens, you're like, sure, it is convenient that all of this lines up perfectly. But I mean, of course it would, because they're all working in the same circles and they're all like, these things have happened that you've seen happen. So you expect it to make sense. Yeah, uh, exactly. Exactly. I, I mean, the convenience is less so that these things happen, these this string of events happens, and more that this string of events happens only involving this these 10 people. Do you know what I mean? That's, that's the convenient part. Like, London is a massive metropolitan city one of the biggest in the western <laughs> world and uh and yeah so the fact that it only revolves around whatever 12 to 20 people or whatever is 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 all you can handle when you're telling a confined story like this but it then makes it feel convenient that all of the those stories intersect at the perfect moment for it's it's not the same thing as like you you see some of the more big serious gangster movies with you know, hundreds of people in the mafia who are all somehow involved or whatever. These they they seem they seem sort of like the unlikely crime successes. Like they they shouldn't be making it on in the industry they've chosen. You know, the the guys running the pawn shop clearly don't know how to like do a robbery or be criminals, but yet here they are. You know, sell or buying and selling stolen goods and getting involved with with you know dirty bookies and things and like you've got this really um like avi too who has clearly no idea how to exist in a world of crime like he he knows how to buy and sell diamonds from people but when he actually has to get his feet wet you know he's like like when he's asking bullet to tony about how he's gonna kill boris he's like oh i'll shoot him he's like isn't that kind of loud and messy and he's like uh well i'll stab him wasn't that kind of cold-blooded like you gotta take your pick here if you're gonna be murdering somebody it doesn't really matter as long as you get the job done but he clearly doesn't have the the i don't know the know-how to be successful so it's almost like they're a bunch of lower tier um not lower tier but like less popular or less big time criminals who are getting involved in this small this small act of diamond uh, heisting. Yeah, um, absolutely. And I think that plays to some themes that we'll get into later, but I just wanted to finish, I guess, on Cine because we went quickly away from that. I, I Yeah. Because um, they're... That's Other than fault. saying it's like stylish, there's not a ton to say. I mean, there's there's a couple um, of things I wanted to ask you about. Right. Well, okay. But I, I will say this. I didn't... I wasn't in like... I liked the look of the movie. It felt cool. It's shot on film, obviously. Um, the lighting felt gritty and urban, so it all felt like it should feel for a picture like this. I just like 
some of it's a little sloppy and a yeah. little, like yeah. Uh, but it but knowing that they had like next to no money and the tavern scene that is when or the pub scene when the when um Vinny and uh and Saul come in and Tyrone come in to rob um Bulletooth Tony at the end or like like they come in with the balaclavas on and then he sits down and has that USA replica mine says desolate yeah, 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 yeah. that whole speech the they couldn't afford on their budget to shut that pub down so ha, like everything behind bullet tooth tony is people getting drunk oh really like there's half of the pub is still open and people drinking where they just had to like shush them when they rolled and apparently wow. like it like took forever to shoot that day because they kept like getting drunk people trying to get involved and <laughs> like can't i be in the background and this kind of thing and oh that's hilarious. and uh but i but so that go the what i'm saying is it's a low budget indie movie that was shot very much that way and i think all my complaints with the movie is because they achieve such a slick big budget feel with less like little to no money so all my complaints are wouldn't be complaints if I knew it had no money, but it looks yeah. so. It does look they slick. They put like, so much money on screen that you just ha- are expecting to see more. Yeah, and then they had the ability to do so. That in and of itself is a big enough compliment that they can trick you into thinking they had a bigger budget than they did. Yeah, I but, do. I do agree yeah. a little bit to the sloppy point in some senses. I guess like, like you know, there's there's a lot of a lot of just sort of. I don't want to make a comparison here, but again, utilitarian sort of work where it's just we're shooting things because this is what we have to shoot to shoot around whatever we're shooting around. Um, But I do remember there was one shot that jumped out at me the last time I watched it that I'd never picked up on before, ever, uh, in all of the watches of this movie. But it's when uh, Sol and Vinny are talking about the replicas and how he's, he's just picked them up and he's like, here's our guns, our replicas. And the whole shot of them talking is just looking at Vinny as he's getting the guns received and they're having this argument. And in the background of that shot, their security camera shows the over of Sol talking back to him, which I never noticed. But when I finally saw it, I was like, oh my God, you can see him and actually like see the conversation in the same frame. I, I thought that was brilliant, but yeah, they, they do a few slick things. And, and when they do stuff like you're like, why aren't they turning around? Generally have a look around. Cause there's usually like a mirror or in this case, a security cam, but, um, and they do use technology cut-ins. Well, like the whole opening sequence. Yeah. Playing, the security camera. Like that's a brilliant sequence. And, and they did storyboard this movie heavily. Um, but that opening, the uh, Benicio del Toro robbing the diamond uh, um, investment pl- or whatever diamond jeweler. Yeah. Um, uh, that whole sequence and they like the whole first part of it's played on uh, like six or eight mo- like yeah, it's just monitors. like a security monitor bank and it goes from one to the other and you get your credit sequence and you yeah. you also set up that it is gonna be kind of a security related heist movie and that these are. You know, it doesn't let you get in close to see them. And also on the DVD commentary for that, Guy Ritchie points out that most of the people working in the diamond office, like looking at jewels and stuff, are one of them's the DP, one of them's like the first AD or second AD. And so I was like, are they just doing that for like, let's have you guys have a fun cameo? Or was this like, we can't afford to have eight background in this office today that can do stunts or whatever? 
and but you guys will do it if we you know a little like i i would imagine i bet you it's a little bit of both yeah yeah um i'm sure that it was a can't afford thing like when in i can't think of which bar shot it is now but there is a shot where the director is also in uh in frame and that was one of those according to him where it was one of those like i've been sitting here looking at the monitor the whole time i don't want to move just look at me and i'll be a background actor now yeah i would say he probably wanted to get in oh i'm sure he did, um but. uh there was one other key thing that i thought was really interesting and my first question was how colorful was the the image when you watched it like this time you mean like just in general your copy and I, okay so i asked this question because when I was watching it, I was thinking, thinking to myself how interesting it was, how like flat and gray and sort of like concrete jungle the color grade seemed to be on it. And then I saw some videos on YouTube and the, the videos on YouTube were a bit more colored than mine were. Huh. So I don't know if it was like something with a copy I had that was regraded or what because it was on two different mon it wasn't just one TV was that way it was my computer which is a somewhat properly calibrated monitor and then also my TV and both of them looked very flat and and I thought so I I watched it with this intent with this intention in my head of the color grade is flat it's kind of gray and washed out and very like city and, and crimey and things no I mean I have the DVD that was made at the time that's what I watched it off uh, whatever. 25 year old dvd or whatever now 21 year old um but um and it was yeah it's fairly colorful i mean the thing is like it's most times they're outside it's overcast british weather so that's kind of gray and then they are in kind of concrete well brick and concrete areas uh, and like and you know pavement or whatever and then you know there's a little bit of and there but there was a little bit of color in even as they would pass by shops there'd be like greenish hues coming off certain yeah lights yeah and stuff i mean and they existed but it, it, it felt was... it felt like closer to log than it was graded oh, in some no, ways I, the one i saw was i thought well graded and i thought there was like um it the blacks are crushed enough that especially in like when doug the head in doug the head's office with avi on the other side they they were playing like a um a divided window look like a sla like a window paneled window look and so there was um you know black dark dark shadowy lines that came across faces and stuff in that scene. yeah yeah i, I and, yeah and that, i think and I'm that felt like that felt i don't know there was a fair bit of because like, there was I, contrast it just didn't feel like it was bright and and uh, huh. colored i don't know but that could have been uh, there's a lot of reasons that it could have just been me seeing it weirdly or something color is very subjective that way um but i just thought it was really interesting that it felt very city to me when i watched it and very like grays and browns and not a lot of bright colors uh yeah no i i mean i think their color pa palette was fairly muted but yeah. i um partly probably to have blood stand out a little bit more when it, there's blood scenes but also um I like yeah I, I like there's not a lot of opportunity in like in these uh London subcultures for like there doesn't seem to be a lot of pizzazz or color or pomp and circumstance <laughs> kind of thing like it's all people in gray coats and black coats and cream coats and like yeah muted colors yeah yeah so I guess that's part of it some of it's production design but that that was one of the the main things that jumped out 
as like a, a, a sort of choice. Well, I, I missed it, and I've missed it every time I've watched it, if, if that was the intention. I, I mean, it feels urban to me, like, but that part of the sloppiness makes it feel urban too, like the mix of color temperatures in the frame and some of the exteriors and stuff feel or makes it feel urban yeah me. yeah definitely um was that was I, I think that was pretty much it yeah i don't i didn't I, I didn't really have a ton to go off of with it because again it was sort of there was nice little moments like the the frame in frame stuff that was cool and and the way that they cut narratives together like which we already touched on that ending piece and how they kind of cut that together the intro sequence as well where they've shot um like the the bringing in all the characters and they're going from one to the next to the next to the next. It was yeah. really, really well cut, really well planned out. And that feels um, like very, what I would say nowadays would be comic booky like yeah, feel yeah. like it. And it, and it, the other interesting thing is it's not a credit sequence. Do you know what I mean? That's what's interesting. No, yeah. Cause it, it's not saying, uh, Dennis Farina as Avi. It's just saying Avi. It's just saying Saul. It's just saying, it's introducing us to this smattering of characters rather than being a credit. Sequence. Yeah. It which, feels like it, but it also, it's like, which goes to his folkloric mm-hmm, tales. Yeah. yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, because it, it, um, like in plays and also, but also f- like sto- stories like that, they would sometimes at the front of a story, like I think in maybe Canterbury Tales and stuff, they'll like list the main few characters and like little character synopses about who's in this story, right? And in theater as well. Yeah, they yeah. They always have that character list. And uh, But what, one of the things I thought was interesting about that too is that when they do introduce those characters, they bring them in um, with an action that tells us exactly who they are and exactly what about them is important for the story like we see frankie four fingers gambling or uh we see like that tommy's getting kind of pushed around a lot and we get the sense that he's sort of a a bit of a pushover character versus turkish who's like working real hard but just has bad luck and everything goes against him and you see him i think like losing at cards and he's like got a great hand but yet he still loses and walks off the table and it's you know it sets up the sort of like key point for each of those characters that we need to know yeah and it's really efficient in that way and gives you and the first time viewer obviously is only subconsciously taking those clues in isn't actually actively like this movie does hold up i will say as as much as earlier i kind of trashed it a little (laughs) bit I, i will say this holds up to a multiple viewing experience because especially with um us being used to north american di- uh, dialects uh some of the i mean i'm good with it because i watch a lot of british television but like I, a, a common complaint about this movie is how difficult it is to understand the characters sure which like some of it is intentional and some of that is just like and they it, got actors who had legitimate cockney accents or whatever and at the time i don't know if this is just one of those fanciful apocryphal tales that went around school or whatever but the brad pitt and that whole tra- like irish traveler uh, caravan crew had those accents specifically because one of the big critical hits against lock stock and two smoking barrels was how difficult the dialogue was to understand. <laughs> so it was a bit of a like a middle finger from Guy Ritchie. I like that. I hope that's true. So I think unless you've got anything else to go on for uh, cine stuff, maybe we should. Yeah, uh, we were really a... general about it and yeah, talk yeah. around it. But yeah, we can move on to story we and go stuff. on to some story character things. Yeah, yeah. 
well, yeah, I, I can start. I think there's like there's mainly you said four storylines and um, th- th- uh, to me, there's two main storylines. There's the di- everything surrounding the diamond heist and there's everything surrounding underground bo- bare knuckle boxing. Right. And each of those have two sort of offshoot. Right. And the groups, and the crossover of it is the bookies. Yes. So yeah. the bookies is is kind of the intersection of both of those kind of parallel stories that ulti- or I guess they aren't parallel because they ultimately cross, but uh, uh, t- uh, uh, chronologically parallel stories. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So what you could almost say that the only reason these stories interact is because Boris and his Russian brother decide they want to screw over the one guy, and that incites everything that happens as far as interconnectedness yeah absolutely it's um and that's played up in that opening scene um with the let me have your gun or when's your flight 30 minutes when let me have your gun and then as he goes to hand it oh and he takes all the bullets out i don't trust this character and maybe it's because benicio del toro um I mean, we uh, going into it, the audience knows who he is as an actor. And because of that, you can play on that as a filmmaker. He's the one we trust more in that scenario. So then when that is the character we're relating to, also, he's the one telling the story. To that point, he's the protagonist, kind true, of. True, true, true. He, um, he's narrating. He's the one telling the, the big Adam and Eve story in the, yeah. in the heist. And so he's the character that the audience is most linked to so far through that part of the story. So the moment he puts distrust in another character makes us distrust the other character. And of course, he, as it turns out, he's right to distrust that character. He's just not going to screw him that moment. He's waiting for his cousin to screw him in London. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Which... Quite a, quite a clever setup, um, uh, and also I guess another connecting point then too because we get uh, he does it again when he gives Tommy a bad gun. Uh, so it's not it's not just Frankie that gets gets the bad gun. It gets uh, it brings Tommy back around again too because he buys a gun that doesn't work. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and uh, and then and the like. And Tommy finding his spine is as his character's arc is through this story. Yeah, yeah. The reason is the reason they're there at the end, and then they follow Boris. Um, well, I guess he comes back and grabs him by the nuts and slams him into the wall. <laughs> um, but it, it's part of what gets them onto the big overlap ending. Yeah, yeah. Um, I th- I think one of the biggest reasons that I loved this movie so much when I first saw it and still get a lot of joy out of watching it is less the again like we said it doesn't have a lot of like thematic depth or anything but the the dialogue is it it gets me every time I guess the the witty sort of like like it's fast and kind of snappy but also like very drawn out at the same time like they say a lot of things that don't really mean anything but in the long term wind up being quite funny and i think that it it, it requires a little bit of um suspension of disbelief i guess because if you think too hard about the way anybody is talking you're just like nobody would ever talk like that nobody would say these things or like but if you get past the 
the suspension of disbelief and just in, enjoy listening to it as like an intentionally sort of like like I, I I don't know idiosyncratic I guess it's 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 like very stylized and very serving a purpose and it was quite consistent and and really brings a lot of humor out that I really enjoyed about it. Yeah, absolutely. And I thought I thought like the dialogue really went to character and and setting and that kind of thing and um and I and I think like I think this is an idealized um you know, cuz like I was looking into this like guy Guy Ritchie, for most of his career, like, this is his main lane. Like, these two movies we've been talking about, Lock, Stock, and This, plus Revolver, plus Rock and Rolla, plus most recently The Gentleman. Um, like, those movies are all this, like, London underground crime kind of feely movies. And, and so it's really his lane. And I was always, and he's clearly really interested in it. And he was a kid that grew up in like a suburb, like he's a white suburbanite uh, kid kind of thing. Um, but clearly he really developed like a fascination for gangster culture, as I think a lot of like growing up like pre-10, I would like, I think a lot of boys I, I talked to growing up uh, or men now, but boys then uh, had a predilection for playing with fire. <laughs> and then I, and yep. then I think another, I think another thing that commonly a lot of kids like in their teens, um, like gangsterism and gangster chic and like that whole, like whether it's this modern, more modern feeling gangster stuff of this, or like a uh, prohibition era gangster stuff, at least me and a bunch of my friends got really interested in that when we were in our teenage years. So I could see a young <laughs> teenage, uh, guy, Richie falling in love with this, like, North London Cockney gangster uh, toughness and like really seeing it as the like epitome of like blue collar toughness. And then, like he said, he heard all these tales, all these apocryphal tales and all these crazy tales about all these um, kind of silly crime or and some serious crime and found a way to like interweave it all here. It kind of builds its own sort of world that is entirely self-contained and you know it's it's based in reality but it's like an idealized 14 year old boy's imagining of what it would be like to live in this world and be a part of that world it's like a uh making the movies that you want to see kind of sort of thing you know yeah absolutely and i and i that's i guess one of like kind of the that's exactly the point I was getting at is like, this is this. And I think that's why this appeals to like, this appealed to me as an adolescent. And then it also, and my early twenties and stuff, cause I was still an adolescent brain then. And, <laughs> yeah. uh, and I, and it appeals slightly less to me now is because I do look for a little bit more substance and stuff. Um, I mean, if, but if we're trying hard and we should, because we're doing this podcast, uh, to like critical think about it, like one of the themes I thought that, came up through a lot of this was like that most of the characters are kind of some of them are happy in their status quo but most of the care like most of the characters given the opportunity want to rise above their station and so almost every ca- character is playing bigger than they are even almost even brick uh brick top brick top brick top yeah yeah oh, even him like He's too. You're, he's this all-powerful gangster that like is feared by everyone, and yet two boxing matches go the wrong way, 
and he's like that's the end of him i mean i also get this sense that you know he's like he's feared as this all-powerful gangster well i also get this sense that he's feared as this sort of all-powerful gangster in the circles that he walks in and that he walks in circles that puts him in that position because really all we know about him is that he runs an underground boxing ring and that if people disappoint him he feeds them to his pigs but beyond that he doesn't have like he doesn't seem to have a mob or a mafia or like a big crime syndicate he runs an underground boxing ring and it's almost like he himself is imagining these gangster movies that he's seen and placing himself as this you know don corleone figure when really all he is is just like a low-tier boxing guy absolutely and like you know i get the sense that like he's the biggest toughest guy in that six block radius <laughs> yeah, yeah but then there's another guy in the next six blocks over and and probably someone who kind of oversees like that would be that would he would be scared of that kind of oversees or maybe a bigger area or whatever um and yeah because the guys running the pawn shop Vinny and saul um you know they're they're a little hapless they're a little hapless but they're like you know they're giving they're a lot of people in this in this movie are given what what i forget what the like common parlance uh, expression for it is but that like they're giving given a devil's deal right like a devil's bargain they're offered an easy something easy money oh just go rob this bookie there'll be lots of money but i get whatever's in the case right and and but of course when something goes wrong there, then it's the end of their life, more or less for most of these characters. They're all reaching for more than they have. Yeah. And I, and I think kind of except for Turkish and Tommy, like they or at least they're doing it, even though they're in the underground boxing world and they're an underground boxing promoter duo. They're like the good guys in a sense. They, but they don't do anything. They're horrible. doing things by the book, not by the legal book, but by the like code of this world, like the code yeah. of the underground. Sure. Sure. The, sure. They're promoting underground boxing is technically illegal, but really all they're doing is just trying to make a living following the rules of the world they exist in. And they're also the only ones who end up coming out of it not worse off than they started. And I think I think that's it's because like intentionally they never try to get more than they never try to get out more than they brought into most situations. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I think that's true. I mean they they're they're there to do a job and make a, a couple bucks and, you know, save up for retirement kind of thing. Whereas, you know, the Soul and Vinny are trying to trying to get outside of just buying and selling things at their pawn shop and and Avi wants this great diamond, and Frankie Fourfingers is, well, no, I mean, arguably he isn't trying to get more out of it. He's just doing his job too, and then he just happens to fall into his game. Yeah, but problem. he's, do- yeah, it's true, but he's also, um, he's not, I guess he's given, he's one of the people that's given the opportunity off screen. Like he, right. he has the job, he's taken the bargain, quote unquote, when he, when the movie starts. Right, he's taking on a contract or a bargain that is bigger than maybe what he would otherwise do potentially, or if it isn't, it's at least. But it's still off camera. Like it's yeah. it's off. Ca- it's also off camera. But the the but he does try to get more. He's trying to get more out of his situation by instead of just finishing the job, he's taking time to go gamble and maybe he can get a little something else out of this. So I think it's everybody just 
like just reaching just above above where they are kind of thing and most people getting slapped down for that the ones who don't are turkish and tommy and arguably uh despite their losses the irish traveler types also they win in a sense i mean mickey has the unfortunate tragedy of having his mom burned alive but overall they get their well, payback they get their money's worth betting against the odds in the match and then get out with minimal quote-unquote losses yeah um and again th- they're given a bargain but it's not they're not asked to get they're not trying to get more out of it than i guess they are they are because they're given a bargain which is you do the fight and it's not even really a bargain it's just sort of like you do the fight well the or you get paid or we we get you yeah well the ending one is like that but the first one when when turkish is just trying to get him to replace gorgeous george because he breaks gorgeous george's uh jaw um that that there he's also trying to get something out of it that's the one where he's he, he wants his mama caravan. Yeah. Yeah. Crazy. Anyways, this, uh, this, this, when you try, when you, when you're watching the movie, the plot goes along, like I said, I've said a couple times, very conveniently it feels, but thinking back on it, there is a lot that happens. There's a lot of strings to this bow. There are, it just, it doesn't feel like it when you are in the midst of it, I guess, because it just sort of feels like things are happening but it doesn't cover a lot of time it doesn't nothing maybe it's because nothing changes it feels like nothing changes but from beginning to end we've gone from one status quo back to almost the same status quo as we were in before the main a lot of the main players are out they either get like arrested or killed or whatever but the big bosses and the whole world itself just goes on business as usual nothing's changed so nothing happens but really a lot happens but i i and i guess that i think that's a bit of the kind of the the morality tale of this is that like this world is this world and you can participate or not but whether you do or not the world will continue to be like this underground world will continue to be what it is yeah and and i think i think that's something that and i I'd love to hear what you think on this, because for me, I feel like a lot of these ideas get brushed aside in a sense because of the comedic, lighthearted sort of farce that it feels like it is. Like, I know, again, we talked about he said it isn't supposed to be. And I think that if the movie had taken itself fully seriously and the dialogue was was not feeling as though it was all just sort of meant to to invoke humor and 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 the convenience of these funny events like if it was a full serious scorsese style crime movie you'd probably notice a lot of these ideas come through more but i felt like because i went into it with the expectation knowing it was meant it was it was a funny movie in my head i missed more of those and you have to look for those sorts of themes and ideas a little bit more hard but i think it's because the like i think it's because you're like you're saying i don't think the movie um the reason you have to look so hard is because the movie doesn't draw your attention to it which isn't necessarily a bad thing i mean at the end of the day i i think that it's it's 
trying to it it's trying to be whether it's trying to be is the wrong word because obviously it wasn't supposed to be but it it adopts this sort of comedic tone but on the on the side of it that makes the the light-hearted treatment of these horrible things a little bit more like uh digestible i guess is that you you recognize that despite how light-hearted it treats a lot of these things underneath the surface it's this it's its own little microcosm that at the end of the day the bad that happens is not is still not repaid it still ends up being the people who do shitty things lose for the most part and while the world goes on it's not condoning any of it it's just this is the world and this is will continue to be as it is yeah and thinking about like so the the worst thing i mean um animal rights activists would be have a field day with the dogs well yeah yeah but the the worst thing to most people that happens in this movie is mickey brad pitt's character's mom being burnt alive in a caravan um but and the movie doesn't spend a ton of time there partly because the movie um later addresses that by saying like, oh, well, it, I thought he moved past his mom's death pretty quickly. <laughs> yeah. Um, but clearly it was because that. behind the scenes, him and his friends were planning this this uh, coup, for lack of a better term, during this moment where they're going to flip the script on, on uh, Bricktop. Um, but yeah, so perhaps because this movie is being told from the perspective of Turkish and Tommy, mainly Turkish, um perhaps that's why less attention is being paid to that i i am curious what you think about that that twist at the end uh you can call it a twist i guess where you're it feels to me like it's trying to be where uh mickey knocks out his opponent which at that point i can't remember the name of whatever boxer he was fighting um and they're like oh now we're fucked and we we so they run out the door and you're like oh they're about to get taken out because bricktop's there and the truck's there and they bled this whole thing up to be this sense, you, you, this belief that they're about to get gunned down, which would be kind of in keeping, I guess, with the way the movie has gone. But then it doesn't, and it turns it around and shows that to you. And I, I, my, I guess my question is that when I watched it this time, I felt like they jumped the gun on it a little bit, and maybe it was because I knew it was coming. But I feel like the voiceover explanation of it and like the the how quickly they came to to reveal that that twist was too soon and it takes away a lot of um potential room for tension and interesting conflict i guess in my head see i thought as soon as you got to the front half of that scene which is uh turkish tommy and mickey coming out and getting going to their van to make the escape at the same time, Bricktop goes to his car to get the shotgun to kill them. Um, the moment you that part plays, you're on a ticking clock before the audience catches up to to where what the story is, what the blanks part so far in the story. And so I do I did think that had to come fairly in rapid succession post that thing, or else it wouldn't have been played as a surprise at all. You're right, and and that's where I I feel like I'm bumping up on because there's this fine line that's towed between when you have to reveal it because it's no longer an interesting surprise, um, 
and and maybe it's just that I, I I don't know what it is, but there's something about it that this time when I watched it through, I just I felt like it was so abrupt and and on it the voiceover being on its own heels. I don't I don't know. The voiceover does a lot of telling what the camera isn't showing, and um, that's generally like when narration gets like critically panned it's this type of narration not that this is bad or whatever and it fits the story and it it fits fits the like in the the when you do when you have a multi-narrative story generally there is a single storyteller telling the multi-narrative story so i think that's so it fits it just it's just very as i've used many times convenient it's 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 a risky it's a risky play voiceover as from a writing standpoint and from a filmmaking standpoint um, because it is so hard to do properly and it can be so hit and miss. Um, and I think there's a couple of points that sell it to me as being val- valuable in this story, which one, of course, like the way it, it goes through the, the telling what we're not seeing part was at least engaging and interesting and it wasn't just sort of like a bland flat, but actually we were wrong. But there was, there's a couple of moments and one in particular stands out where, where we get to see the voiceover being, uh, from a perspective that is not omniscient. Um, the one that stands out is when Turkish gets back after the first, uh, the first knockout, early knockout. And he's talking about his safe and he's talking about how he has to get out of there and he's standing making tea and the voiceover is talking and behind him you can see that Bricktop and his guys are already there, but he doesn't know and so his voiceover doesn't know and so he's talking as though everything is still happening when we know already ahead of time that he's already been caught, which I, I thought was a really cool play on on using that. Yeah, absolutely. I, yeah, sure. Yeah, you're right. And there's a, like... Um, I think it's undeniable this movie does a lot of clever things. It's it's clever, uh, but again, I think the theme of it becomes clever for the sake of you know rule of cool and less because it's got any yeah. major substance. And and I will say this in defense of Snatch, and again, <laughs> this is a movie I liked. <laughs> <laughs> um, while Rock and Rolla had some merit, uh, um, I didn't. I don't I didn't like it or revolver near as much as the first two that he did in that genre. And so if you want to see what substance uh, or style over substance in a Guy Ritchie hands truly look like, I would say it's those two films as opposed to these two. Oh, okay, okay. Um, see, and I didn't watch The Gentleman either, but I heard a lot of mixed commentary on it as far as like what people thought about his latest. It's the to me it's the closest to the feel of his early work. Okay, it's the closest okay. he's come ever in his career to the feeling of the first two. And actually, um, something I didn't touch on earlier when we were kind of talking about Guy Ritchie in general is those first two movies, like Guy Ritchie uh, was kind of Tarantino-esque. In, I, well, Tarantino re- helped relaunch careers, a bunch of different careers, like took a- actors he loved and put them in stuff to try to give them a boost. It worked for Travolta and Samuel Jackson, a few other people. Um, um, but this guy, um, like famously, he saw Jason Jason Statham like running a card game, like a like a 
whatever can't find the queen card game type right, of, like okay. a shell game for because that's when you meet his character in lock stock and two smoking barrels that's what he's doing so i don't know if it's if he was actually doing that or if he's just a bit of a street hustler he had done some short films and acting prior to doing that very little though but that like his first movie is lock stock his second movie is snatch same with Vinnie Jones. Yeah. yeah. Um, because Vinnie Jones was a, like a European soccer, like football, European football player um, who like was a notorious tough guy. Yeah, like back yeah. when there was like when when soccer or football rather was like had more meat, like like there was guy you could like tackle more viciously and guys were breaking legs and stuff like that. Yeah, Vinnie Jones was right up there. Was yeah, I think he had like the most red cards. And, and Guy Ritchie saw him and said, "That guy should be in movies." Well, he he said like he had a cinematic face, and yeah. he always felt like he he had this truth about who his character that he he wasn't acting the tough guy. He was a tough guy. So, um, and Guy Ritchie because they had no money on the first movie. He f- he he populated the film with real tough guys, real like street toughs and like real people. And he said it was actually a, an issue. And he in the DVD commentary in this movie, um, the character who plays Rosebud, who's the guy who gets the sword through his chest, yeah, yeah. in the back seat, um, when he's handling Boris the Blade with the tea cozy on his head in the back uh, in the trunk, he apparently was like really manhandling him. Oh, and it it like it either injured or or almost injured Boris's care, like in re- real life, and he actually had to like pull the AD aside and be like, "Listen, can you tell him I'll make the movements like actors do, and you don't throw me into positions and stuff?" And um, and uh, well, and and Vinnie Jones, um, when they did the scene where they bring that actor, the Scottish actor, through the car and they put up the car window, that actor. Uh, while just doing the rehearsals, they used a stuntman for the driving part, but just the Vinnie Jones pulling him into the thing. He, again, because he's not a trained actor, did that so violently, he separated the kid's shoulder. Holy crap. Yeah. <laughs> so so they, and I guess there were stories like that from Lockstock where be, the use of not real tough guys to play tough guys, sometimes in the heat of the moment, they do something that a real tough guy would do that is, <laughs> to an actor, shocking. And, uh, but it does. And to his credit, it lended lends an air of authenticity to the tough guys in this, in this film and in Lockstock. Yeah. Yeah. That's very true. Um, and it, 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 it ends up igniting quite a few acting careers amongst the people in, in these movies that, you know, go on like Jason Statham or, or whoever go on to much bigger things because of, you know, the opportunity they got here, which is, just great his name is slipping my mind right now but tommy who's gone on to do a ton of stuff he was like in um boardwalk empire he played capone and he's he's uh he's a liverpudlian he's a he's a scouser and um he apparently like he was in um the short film that got guy Ritchie all the attention to make Lockstock called the hard case and the way he got the part in that was he was an actor as well, uh, but he he was driving his other actor buddy to the short film with Guy Ritchie and w- was like busting his buddy's balls the whole time. And then when he got out of the car was apparently like 
parroting all the tough guys on set that they had and their dialogue. So he was like slipping into like a Cockney and then like a West London accent. And he could do all these different accents. And uh, Guy Ritchie was so impressed because a Scouse accent is a very thick and like um, easily identifiable to someone from the UK. Or easily misidentified if or not misidentified, but identified as wrong if it's wrong yeah exactly and he was he's able to like totally hide that and play a really believable accent yeah. and it's what's his name sir his name's Stephen graham Stephen graham i knew it was Stephen something i just couldn't remember the last name but he's he's a great talent and guy Ritchie. so that i mean there's probably more but at least three in this lock stock and then this that he launched those like launched those careers yeah yeah um i don't have much else to go off I feel like as far as notes made and things thought of, like there's a lot of small things. So I was like, oh, this is a fun little thing that I thought was like the fact that Boris the Blade just carries a butcher knife on his belt for some reason. <laughs> just, you know, like it, but it's all, it's all pretty surface level as far as like, you know, those kind of comments. I don't know if they're worth going full conversation. about. Yeah. Anymore, so no. And I, and I think, but I think that goes to the conversation we already had that this has the like, has a somewhat adolescent mindset for for its uh, tone and and uh, and the handling of these th this uh, world. So I guess that takes us to the questions then. Yeah. So um, I've I've already kind of answered this, but is this a is this a revisit a rewatchable film for you? I mean, I've watched it many times. Uh, it is definitely in my mind rewatchable. Uh, I think while it isn't super deep and doesn't have a lot of really really complicated themes and things to explore i think every time you watch it you might pick up little details you know they throughout the whole movie they do a great job of setup and payoff of a variety of different things over some longer gaps too where something happens in the beginning and you almost forget about it and then it comes back at the end so just for those factors it's not one that i would say you should watch a whole lot necessarily and i think that it's also you got to be prepared for that sort of adolescent humor over over realism and and whatever but rewatchable nonetheless yeah i would agree i think it's a like certainly if you've only ever if you watch this once i would say just have another watch because there is he there is a lot of humor and callbacks and little moments that really pay off that really make you smile make you laugh and it's one of those things, you know, that holds up to multiple viewings because of that. And it's you enjoy it one way when you first see it, and then you can enjoy it in a whole different way, but almost equally every sub, like every uh, subsequent uh, viewing. Um, so I guess uh, also, would you say you need to be in a certain mood to watch this uh, this movie? I would again say that no, I don't think I would, but I can put myself in the shoes of a person who would, in the sense that. If you're not prepared to sit down for a silly, goofy comedy, you know, it can be maybe a bit of a hard watch. But for me, I if I put it on, I'll probably watch it and enjoy it the whole way through. Uh, uh, I think goofy is a little harsh for the comedy. No, goofy's maybe the wrong term. You're right. But but, but no, I agree. Like um, it's it's more it's I find it more comedy than drama. Yes. And then um. But I, I would say, I guess, kind of not a mood thing, but it's it's not like it is a more mature, like we called it, like the humor is adolescent, but the violence and stuff, uh, I would say, makes it a more mature viewing audience. 
And then, um, but I don't think, yeah, I, I could watch this in any mood, really. Yeah, I think so. Um, I don't, like, it's, yeah, it's something to throw on. Well, I guess not, you should pay attention, because, like I said, there's lots of little things. But it is it is something I could put on any time, really. Um, and then, I guess, finally, is this a movie that if it's difficult to find, you would seek out, or you would tell someone to seek out, maybe rent? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I don't I don't think for the same reasons as I usually say with the other movies we've talked about where I would say it because it's a pivotal piece of cinema that one needs to watch, but more that just like I don't think I think if I if I were to to tell somebody to seek it out, I don't think anybody would come back and be really disappointed that they spent some money or or time trying to find it. I don't think that making the effort to see it if you haven't is going to leave you disappointed. I think you will get enough out of it that it would be a valuable search. Yeah, and I think um, I think similarly. Um, I would say like if you've watched like The Gentleman because um, it, it's streaming now and it's more recent, and that and you went, I enjoyed that, and you want something in that similar theme and vibe, then yeah, seek this out. Um, I like. I think there are i think this movie does a lot of interesting things but i think there are movies that do these things as well and better since then um so they might be more ones to like seek out um but this like this is an enjoyable movie i've never put it on and like not had a chuckle or two while i watched it um I've just, uh, yeah, and it, and it could be just my own personal, like I've seen it too many times kind of thing because I watched it a lot in my early 20s mm-hmm. um, that it now feels old and older and staler to me. And it also is probably because a lot of imi- movies have imitated the style of this film. But yeah, I, I, I'm. it's the first of the movies we've done that I would say isn't necessarily like, a seeker like it's not something you should re- like really really like seek out to find if you like the other stylings of guy ritchie or stylized like uh crime caper stuff then this is like uh then this is one to seek out for you but it would be to your taste whether you do it or not yeah yeah that's fair that's totally fair overall it's it still holds a, a solid place in my mind it's still got a lot uh, a lot of good things about it so i think i'd give it at least like eight and a half squeaky toys probably ah that's interesting um uh i looked at the squeaky toy um skating rail uh like rating scale rating scale (laughs) and uh i decided uh to go with uh 18 replica handguns Oh, you know, that's quite a few. That's quite a solid uh, replica rating there, you know? Uh, like a whole arsenal, really. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like, you can do a ton with replica handguns, especially 18 of them. So, I mean, that, that that you know, I, I, I sense the vibe. I, I, I get that's a pretty good recommendation from for this one, for sure. <laughs> Well, this uh, this was uh, this was a different kind of feel from the movies we've done so far, but I I did enjoy revisiting it, and it was uh, it 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 entertained me once again. So thank yeah, you. Yeah, and I think it gives us uh, it, it's it's good to change change pace like that. You know, we we've done some some heavier, serious, more um, artful, uh, highbrow perhaps cinema. 
Um, and now we've done a little bit more like mainstream. And I think that that's, uh, yeah, it was a good conversation. I think that that's a good representation of the fact that going forward, we can continue to swap around and, and change gears when we, when we want to, and when we need to, and, and get a good smattering of things going. So I hope you all enjoyed this and um, thank you very, very much for listening. You can find us on Instagram at Cinematics Podcast or on Twitter at Cinematics Cast for scheduling and random other updates as we go forward. Um, you can also find us to listen to the show on pretty much any platform you get your podcasts. Uh, if you did enjoy the show, we would love to uh, see a rating or some feedback. It really helps us uh, both with our uh, continuing to make better content for you as well as getting more eyes on the show. Um, so we would really appreciate one of those. And uh, until next week, thanks for watching and we'll see you guys later. Uh-huh.